Bible has been around, read, adjusted, and interacted with for literally ages. Greg has read it so you don't have to, and now births into the world, Better Bible. Before we begin, as you will be listening to a retelling of Bible, please note that trigger warnings are in place for racism, xenophobia, violence, sexual assault, rape, child abuse, incest, animal cruelty, and more. Welcome to A Better Bible. Okay, so judges, this is a big one and we're going to try and heavily condense this down. Now, you know that warning at the start of all these episodes? Well, it's really relevant with this one, okay? In in fact, right, let's just go straight ahead and listen to that warning again. Before we begin, as you will be listening to a retelling of Bible, please note that trigger warnings are in place for racism, xenophobia, violence, sexual assault, rape, child abuse, incest, animal cruelty, and more. Marvellous. Now we're all on the same page. So, basically, before there were kings and rulers and things like that, God's given people were sporadically looked after by these judges. Essentially, they were huge, flawed warriors that would fuck up a certain group of enemies that had previously been giving them some grief. The whole book keeps repeating the standard pattern of God's peeps be dicks. God makes big enemy fuck over his peeps. The peeps apologise. God says, too late, don't care. Peeps say, please. God sends a judge to fuck up enemy. Judge duly doth fuck up enemy. Peace for a bit. God's peeps be dicks. In a never-ending, well, 21 chapter and then quite abruptly ending, cycle of dickery on all parts. The people, the god, the enemies, the judges, and us as readers. Dick, 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 dick. Right. Let's get into this. Joshua was dead to begin with. We open in the exact same way that Christmas Carol starts. Joshua is dead. Soon, the Israelites want to know who is going to fight for them against their enemy. Turns out the Simonites and Judah will do some fighting, and they will be fighting the Canaanites. Fair warning, there's going to be a lot of different groups fighting a lot of different other groups, and I cannot be held responsible for the amount of times I'm going to get the wrong names. But yeah, this goes alright, and there are about 10,000 dead. The people of Judah obviously destroyed destroy the Canaanites and cut off the toes and thumb of their king to ensure none of his shoes or gloves fit correctly. Then our heroes go on to fuck up Jerusalem and as a sort of prize they dish out sex slaves, slave slaves, do some killing of children because fuck all children apart from the children they can fuck in which case fuck those children because fucking children isn't fucked. The daughters are offered to people who kill big fish for you are a fisherman, follow me and I shall make you a fisher of underage poon. It cannot be overstated that within God's will, slavery is absolutely fine, along with rape, pedophilia, etc. All absolutely fine. This is essentially the prologue to the book. A little bit of fun at the top going, here's the tone, okay? This is, this is very much the area we'll be working within for the next few chapters. Utter carnage and no morals whatsoever. The angel of the Lord appears and what a surprise. Starts banging on about how the Lord led them out of Egypt, at which point I'm guessing a lot of the assembled people were thinking, I would have stayed in Egypt if I'd known that this would be thrown in my face every bastard day, right? They are told in no uncertain terms to hate their enemies. 
With this pointed out, we jump back in time like a fancy movie to when Joshua was alive and dishing out the land to the 12 tribes. Joshua then dies, again for the second time this book, we're currently on chapter 2. The Israelites forget about God and start serving the other gods. This makes God furious as they're only supposed to have the one God which seems... Right, God is allowed millions and millions of followers, but each of those followers are only allowed one God, which doesn't seem entirely fair, does it? But regardless, hell hath no fury like a deity spurned, so God gives his people to their enemy. Like, God actively messes them up each time they try to defend themselves. Swords fall out of hands, oversleeping, all that jazz. But inevitably, right, God's a bit of a softie, so decides to help their people by giving unto them judges. And the cycle continues. Judge gets rid of enemies as long as the judge lives, everything is chilled. Judge dies and then its people immediately follow other gods. We get a list of all the people God sends to fuck up his people and a brief mention of a fat man who gets a sword rammed into his stomach so deep that the flesh grows around the sword. Can't really remember the point of this other than throwing it in as they knew it would look dope in the movie. But we get a named judge. To be fair, I think we've already had a couple that I missed. But okay, we get Ehud, who is the fat king slayer. He visits a king saying, I have a message from God and that message is sword time bitch. Stab Fattengulf's sword. The king then literally shits himself like a little bitch and Moab goes back to Israel. I definitely miss something here. But time is a wasting and all we definitely need to know is a fat dead king shits himself and Moab, no idea who that is, has returned to Israel. I imagine he was kidnapped during an earlier battle in, in fact let's just agree to go with that as a story. So this Ehud is definitely one of the first judges and shows us that they aren't playing. The way they deal with their enemies is going to be brutal and merciless, but all is calm. Ehud dies, the peeps turn heel, God sells them out, yada yada yada. Time for the next judge. A lady one this time, Deborah. Deborah is sent out fighting. This time, the intention is to get rid of a dude called Sisera, who is a king of sorts. Now, you know that bit in Indiana Jones, where the good woman drinks the bad man under the table in order to mess him up. Yeah, that, right? Deborah knows that as she's a woman, she'll be intensely underestimated and can use her powers of seduction, for Deborah was fit to get inside Cicero's tent, get him drunk, go all, oh baby, let's bang, oh no, you done passed out, whatever shall I do? And what she decided to do was take a tent peg and plunge that through his skull, hammering the metal peg through the bone, the brain, killing that motherfucker dead. Bad ass. But immediately after, it turns into one of those shit bits in The Hobbit and Deborah starts singing a song about how good God is. She also tells a story of what just this moment just happened, literally just this moment, but goes into more detail, showing us in a helpfully clear way just how stories morph and change over time, how exaggerations and biases, how spin and excitement changes a story and that after a small amount of time, we can't really believe anything that we read as it will definitely be completely different to the actual story. Each telling of a story isn't a telling of that story, but a telling of the last time the story was told. I like to imagine that this was put in the early part of the narrative section of the Bible as a warning to take all these pages with a big old pinch of salt. That'd be good, wouldn't it? It wasn't, though. This is one of the earliest books of the Bible and has been clumsily hammered together by balance. Deb's tale is over, so time for Israelites to be a big group of bitches and get punished. A few of them run off to hide in some caves and God sends out Gideon. This judge will be in charge of fucking up the Midnights. God tells Gideon to tear down the altar of all other gods with the idea that when people see the vandalism, they'll lose their goddamn minds. Gideon manages to put together an army, but this army, frankly, 
has too many people and winning without a struggle is not worth it. So he orders the fearful to leave. A few leave, but still Gideon has quite a large army. They march on down to a river and God gives one of his trademark mental orders. He says, Gideon, right, let's strip back this army a bit and I'm gonna help you decide who stays and who goes, okay? The ones I say can go with you, they can go with you. Got it? And the ones I say cannot go with you, they cannot go with you. So get everyone on their knees in front of that river. They're just, yeah, yeah, just that one there, right? Now, hear me out. They're gonna drink up some river water, okay? Now, shut up, I'm not mental, this makes sense. The ones who kneel politely and like cup their hands and bring, bring that to their mouth to drink the water, you see them, yeah? And the other kind, on their hands and knees, lapping up the water like dogs. Call that? Well, of course there's less of them. This has split them into two groups, and you're gonna take the ones that drink like dogs. Then we get a brief chat about a dream, Snoresville, am I right? Then we hear that the fight plan, as every good sensible fight plan, will involve heavily trumpets. The fight happens, trumpets trumpet, and they win the day. In order to celebrate, they eat some bread, delicious, but remember people, this is Bible, so we need to a spot of unnecessary friction, uh, someone refusing to give Gideon some bread, so gets skinned alive and thrown from a tower, which as ever seems perfectly reasonable. And at some point, they acquire one metric fuck ton of earrings and mess about with camel ornaments. Next up, we get a lot of brutality in a very, very short space. Let's rush through this bit so we can get ourselves on to Samson. Thornbush chat, classic Bible, then some names I can't properly pronounce. Ibilimac wants to kill Gale and Zebel. In order to do this, lock up a tower and burn everyone alive inside. Right. Then a millstone is dropped by a woman on someone's head to split the skull open. Apologies for the lack of clarity there, but it, it's a lot, right? Then God's people be dicks, get fucked, crawl back to God who gets a little pissy. If you love those gods so much, why don't you marry them? Right. We're pretty much at the halfway point. The big stories left to cover are Jetharat, Samson, Mika, and this mental bit of the end, which is, it's nuts. Jethro. So this guy's mum was a prostitute, and as a result, all the people hated him and turned him away from the city, exiling him and treating him like a proper pariah, but obviously he grows up to be strong as shit, and those self-same people who turned him away when he was a child suddenly want him to fight for them. And he's like all, oh, I see how this shit is. You want my help now I'm strong, but what was all that shit about when I was younger? Yeah, 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 whatever, mate. We want you now, and isn't that enough? Infuriatingly, it turns out, yes, that is enough. Not entirely sure what the lesson we are to take from this brief exchange. Uh, presumably, if someone turns you out of town and treats you like utter shit because your mother was a sex worker, and then, when they decide they want you to help them out down the line, you should be grateful because reasons. It doesn't make a lick of sense. But regardless, Jethra is now a judge who will be in charge of fighting the Ammonites, and not once at, in all of Bible do they do an Am I Right joke in. But before this battle, we get a little bit of history of loads of previous battles, presumably just to cement in our minds that at this time, it was non-stop hectic. And apparently, although not historically accurate at all, with the specifics of these stories, this book does give an accurate feel to what it was like at the time in that place. Just loads of brutal, violent beefing going on constantly, with no one ever really feeling perfectly safe with their position. Anyway, where were we? Fighting, that's it. Okay, so a battle with the Ammonites, am I right? 
right? God makes Jeff win, so cheating, which I, I don't get. If God is going to intervene and cheat to make sure they win, why doesn't he just get rid You know what? I don't have time to question all the mental decisions God made. So they win, is the point. Fine cheating, but a win is a win. Then, his daughter is a virgin and cries in the mountains. I know, I think I missed something here too, but the amount of times I say virgin crying in mountains makes me think maybe I'm not missing anything, and that's just... That's just how this world works. But the people ever needing to be angry about something get angry that Jethro didn't fight with them. They treated him like shit, got him to do their dirty work, and then get angry when he did as he was told without them. So they kill people who can't pronounce words correctly. Next! We arrive at the judge who everyone knows, the story that is oh so familiar. It's time for Samson. That's right, the whole Samson and Delilah story where we learnt that women are not to be trusted in any way at all under any circumstances, and that strength is vitally important. It begins in the same way that all the others do. The Israelites are being little pricks, worshipping the wrong gods, and generally being absolute nightmares. There's a barren woman who's told that she'll defo become pregnant so long as she doesn't drink wine, which works out well for her, as she is one of the Nazarites, uh, one of the 12 tribes that can't drink wine or cut their hair. Remember them? Yep, well, that hair-cutting thing will come in very pivotal in a bit. Anyway, don't drink wine and you'll get babied up big time. She duly gets pregnant, it's Samson, and she's told once again never cut his hair and he cannot ever drink wine. Now, when Samson is all grown up, he tells his parents that he wants a Philistine wife and they should go sort this out for him. He then sees a lion coming, coming about, so he tears it apart with his bare hands. Inside this lion is some honey. Delicious, thinks Samson, and he eats it. From inside, the lion. That is, lion carcass honey. This has apparently got something to do with him being flawed because it's not right for one of God's people to eat magic honey from inside the carcass of a lion and that you have ripped apart with your bare hands. Not entirely sure if this is a word-for-word law. Seems like the sort of thing that you can kind of assume isn't the done thing. Anyway, Samson yums up all this honey. His parents are on the hunt for a Philistine wife and he does a riddle to fuck up some fools. It is all going on for Samson. Now, Samson has this wife, and it's great, until he wants to go to her room, but his wife's father doesn't let him, as apparently he gave the girl to someone else. Samson is furious. This woman, or girl, who is or will be his wife, has been betrothed to someone else, potentially. Samson, in his trademark, reasonable way, decides that the best course of action is to get a shitload of foxes and let them loose in Philistine with fire attached to their tails. Everyone loses their shit, and as a result of this, let's be fair, prank, the Philistines set fire to Samson's wife and father-in-law. Okay, uh, let's go through that again, shall we? Samson has wife. Father-in-law promises Samson's wife to another. Samson angry. Samson lets foxes with fire attached run amok about Philistine. Philistines get revenge by burning Samson's wife and father-in-law to death. This naturally leads to war. Loads of fighting going back and forth until the Israelites have had enough and think, look, you want Samson so much, just take him, leave us be, and take this big, hairy, hulking, sober mess of a man. Samson proceeds to murder a thousand Philistines with a donkey's jawbone. After this dabble with extreme violence, Samson is knocking about in Philistine, just hanging out with the local prostitutes. Sometimes as a punter, sometimes as a friend, but at night, he rips off some doors, or 
something. This silliness is going on until he meets Delilah, proper falls in love almost instantly. Like, head over heels, can't believe his luck falls in love, and it's never perfectly clear whether or not Delilah falls in love with him. Either way, they bang and hang for a while, and she, Delilah, is a Philistine, and her Philistine friends order her to find out what Samson's weakness is. They want to vanquish him, but he's far too strong for them, and must have some kind of weakness. Delilah saddles up to a lover and just flat out says, Babe, what's the secret to your strength? How could someone, not me, I love you and you can trust me, but someone else, not me, a baddie, how could they overpower you? Samson does not suspect a fucking thing from this, but decides to have some fun. He pulls some bullshit out of thin air and tells her that something uh, about being tied down with wet cores or whatever. So she says, that's interesting anyway, hey ho, let's go straight to sleep. Whilst asleep, she binds him in wet cords, gets the Philistines to sneak in with the plan to overpower him, yells at Samson, fuck my hat, love, the Philistines are here and they've worked out what one of your weaknesses is. You have that you told me and they've gone done it, but I didn't tell them and I don't know how they worked it out other than this one thing that the only person in the world who knows it is me and you lied to me so no one knows it because it's not true but they've done it. Samson laughs, says that's not his weakness and proceeds to fuck up the Philistines. Doesn't suspect Delilah at all. Delilah says that she feels a little stupid that he lied to her about his weakness. He laughs, still not suspecting a thing and they go on with life. This happens another two times. Delilah asks about his weakness. He lies. She does that thing. Wakes him up to announce the Philistines have done that one secret thing that only he and she know and Samson fucks up Philistines and laughs about how stupid they are. Delilah keeps addressing his lies, saying he's making her look a fool. She thought he loved her. Samson, not suspecting a thing, just keeps on keeping on. Time comes to pass, and finally, Delilah is like, babe, come on, for reals this time. You know you can trust me. What is this secret? He tells her the truth, because I guess he feels bad about lying to her all those times or something. Says, it's my hair. Cut my hair, I'm fucked. She then says, that's interesting. Promise you're not lying again. I promise you, I am not lying, my love. They head to sleep, she cuts his hair off, Philistines come in, overpower him, capture him, job done. The Philistines then gouge his fucking eyes out so he is blind, in agony, weak, and a slave. The Philistines use Samson for party tricks, like, look at this rubbish strongman, and they all laugh. This goes on for ages. Now, during all this time, Samson's hair, as it typically does, is growing. He is stood in front of a crowd of jeering Philistines in between two pillars, the two stone pillars that are coincidentally holding the entire structure up. Samson prays, saying, God, if you could give me my strength this one time, I will fuck these fools up and kill them along with myself. Is that cool? God thinks about this and decides, do you know what? That would be suitably funny, so grants him his wish. Samson then pushes the pillars down, crushing each and every one in there, including himself. Ta-da! That is your Samson and Delilah story. But we're not done yet. Let's have a look at Mika. And at this point, there's a recurring phrase throughout this book that I probably should have mentioned already, but I haven't, so here we go. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. This pretty much sums up this whole book. People living by their own rules and occasionally God sends a judge to help out. Like Mika, who returns stolen silver to his mother and gets hassled by the Danites because of an idol or something, which the Danites steal, and Mika is confused and the Danites slaughter a whole town, including children, and take slaves and all that horrible stuff, and the story is frankly a mess. It's like someone saw the other tales and wanted to put their own spin on one, but got it horrifically wrong. Mika is stupid and seems like the bullshittiest of all the bullshit judges, but we have arrived at the final story. Try and keep up, because a lot happens in this, and it is all 
utterly horrific. There's a Levite with a concubine who's being unfaithful. She leaves and the Levite goes to stay with his father-in-law. The father-in-law has been dead nice and he stays there for about a week. I have no doubt missed something or misremembered something or got a bit of this wrong, but regardless, forget all about that because the Levite leaves the father-in-law and gets himself to a nice little town where our story begins. He has nowhere to stay in this town, so decides to have a sleep in the town square. And he has his concubine with him at this point, so fuck knows if she left in the first place, or if she did, she must have come back to him. It's written in a confusing and dumb way. Anyways, right. Man and concubine in the town square just relaxing. An old man sees them and insists that they can't stay there and instead they should come round his gaff and he'll look after them, feed them, wash their feet, house them, keep them warm, safe, all that great stuff. They think this is amazing, a plan with no drawbacks. A mob knocks on the door that night of the old man's house in a way that is exactly the same as back in Sodom. They are going, we see you have a stranger in there, can we have him out here to rape please? We definitely want to rape him. The old man says you can't do that, this man is a guest, but he has a concubine or I have a virgin daughter. These two female characters will be interchangeable and Greg isn't too sure which is which, but regardless you can rape them if you want. Shall I kick them out so you can have your way with them? Yes, please, say the mob. The concubine or virgin daughter are promptly kicked out of the house and gang raped all night. The abuse is too much for her to bear and she crawls towards the house but dies just outside. In the morning, the man goes to leave the old man house, sees his concubine dead on the floor and orders her to get up so they can leave. She doesn't get up because she is dead and the angry man picks up her broken, lifeless body and throws it on his horse and they fuck off. He then cuts her body into 12 pieces and sends a piece to each tribe of Israel as they are responsible for her death. All of Israel is appalled at this, and they come together to try and work out what has happened. They find out that the town that this happened at was uh, Gibba, and send armies over there to destroy them. The fight happens, and God helps to vanquish the baddies. However, the baddies are still one of the tribes of Israel, so we have this weird kind of deal struck. No one wants to allow their daughters to marry men from the rapey tribe, however, they are still Israelites, so need the people to flourish. So they agree that rapey tribe are allowed to kidnap and steal women from other tribes in order to have wives. This way, no one is giving their women away to the horrible people, but the horrible people can still flourish as God intended through kidnap and rape. Rape is resolved by allowing more rape. This is how they deal with this moral dilemma. The book ends with a repetition of the phrase, in those days, Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. Which seems to be a way of going, you can't judge them by our standards. Yes, it's an uncomfortable read, but it was different back then. You know, the weakest piss argument many people still use. So yeah, that's judges. Hopefully, I won't have to say rape as much in subsequent episodes. Although, I suspect I will. Congratulations on listening to this episode of Better Bible. Start a club and share your favorite moments. Tell your loved ones we're here, and we will save you. Greg Bless. That's really stupid. Stupid. <laughs>